Welcome to Conflict Managed. I'm your host, Mary Brown. Today on Conflict Managed, we are joined by Alex Richardson. Since 2019, Alex has been the director of the National High School Ethics Bowl based at the University of North Carolina's Parr Center for Ethics. A philosopher working at the intersections of ethics, political philosophy, and the philosophy of education, Alex is an award-winning teacher and an advocate for public and pre-college philosophy pedagogy. He received his Ph.D. in philosophy from the University of Tennessee, Knoxville, in 2021. In addition to his work at the Parr Center, Alex teaches courses in ethics and political philosophy in the Department of Philosophy at Elon University. Alex also serves on boards of directors for the Association for Practical and Professional Ethics and Ethics Bowl Canada, as well as on the American Philosophical Association's Committee on Pre-College Philosophy. Good morning, Alex, and welcome to Conflict Managed. Thanks, Mary. Glad to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Oh, I'm very excited to have you on today because, as we will get to later in this podcast, Alex is the director of the National High School Ethics Bowl, something that I've been involved with for a very long time and a strong advocate for. But before we get to your work, uh, let's talk about you. Alex, can you tell us about the first job you ever had? Sure. Yeah, the first job that I ever had. Gee, that would have been in early undergraduate. I used to work as a a seasonal marketing associate for the Coca-Cola company uh, in Chattanooga, Tennessee. It, in many ways, was just putting boxes of things on shelves. Um, But in other ways, I guess arranging them creatively for sales purposes was was the kind of interesting adventure. And uh, it was the ideal sort of uh, summer break job for an undergraduate. That's where I started. So what was your first manager like? Um, My first manager was, I think he was pretty good at his job, if not uh, the most communicative person. Um, sometimes I, I found myself uh, sort of choreographing and making guesses about his expectations in ways that I, I thought were sometimes, it, it made them difficult to sort of meet in a lot of ways. So I, I, I think that that is instilled, I mean, not just that experience, but experiences in other jobs, particularly as I, you know, continued academic work, went through graduate school. I, it's really taught me that, like, clear, concise, and purposeful communication are not givens in workplaces. And so I think over time, I've just been constantly kind of doubling down on the importance there. Because I think from my very earliest days, right, like, I, there's... It may be that there are a few things worse than doing a job where you don't understand the end, where you don't understand the goal, right? And so I think, like, if there is a purpose for an overarching manager class, right, it it is at the very least something like mission alignment, um, which is something that, you know, know, 15 years later, as the director of a national nonprofit, I've I've really started thinking carefully about and and now you know have on my plate enforcing so to speak right so it's it's good that you asked this question because it's a thing that I think about pretty often. I think it's interesting that you say that because a lot of times when we think about managers, right, they're leading the day to day, they are making sure work gets done and it's distributed and and they many times are sort of the, this middle bridge, mm-hmm. and a lot of times we don't think about. In the day-to-day, the mission, going for the mission and being in purposeful in everything that we do. And yet, we know that in the day-to-day, we can execute our jobs more efficiently, creatively, and be more engaged if we know that what we are doing in the everyday is being on mission. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I think that, that that kind of alignment is absolutely crucial. I mean, particularly in in roles that are you know compensated, right? But even in roles that are like volunteer based, right? I mean, this is something particularly important in the nonprofit se- sector, where you know folks are pretty much well the nonprofit, not only the nonprofit sector but the education sector as well, which is where my work sort of intersects. Where you can basically assume that everyone you come across is both underpaid and overworked. So like, I mean, it's it's very important in, in, you know, sort of typical corporate hierarchical contexts, but it's also like incredibly, maybe even more so important in contexts where, you know, folks are doing the work in many cases simply because they love it, simply because they align with the mission, right? If that's the thing that keeps people in the door, such as in many cases in the nonprofit sector, it's absolutely crucial. But I mean, I think it's, 
it's really central to like to thinking about you know the the typical hierarchical corporate role as something that's sort of deeply meaningful that you can believe in as opposed to a thing that you show up to which i think is something that in the back of our heads regardless of what our pursuits are we we all want right right absolutely it, it just reminded me of um years and years ago i was uh, volunteering at a food bank with my husband and there was some difficulty with somebody that worked there because the mission, the overarching mission of the food bank was to serve people and to distribute food to them. And it seemed that one of the persons, one of the volunteers, they believed the mission was to stock the pantry efficiently. And the way that this person interacted with the constituents was hateful because they were taking things off of the shelves or whatever it might be. And so this person had to be let go from this volunteer position. And so I think it is interesting that you say, you know, that that the role of the leader, even in a nonprofit, even if those people are there volunteering, that to make sure that everyone is on the same page, that we're all doing the same mission, or we can get lost in the weeds because it's good to stock your pantry correctly. We don't yeah. want to give people expired food. Yeah. But that's in service. Everyone, that's right. Everyone in the nonprofit sector is balancing their service obligations with their their financial bottom lines, right? Right. So I I think that's the that's the analog, right? Um, That's complicated, but I think it's so important. Did you have or have you had any managers or mentors that modeled this being clear, concise, and purposeful in communication? Yeah, I I count myself lucky that I've had several, and some of them have been in my academic career, and and some of them have not, and I think that's that's also deeply valuable. Um, you know, this will this will likely speak to you as I know you have a history of, of teaching undergraduates philosophy. Um, but you know, learning in an environment that is sort of deliberative and collaborative, where the very purpose of the education you're getting not only at the undergraduate level, but in my case, at, at the, the the master's and, and doctoral level as well, is to model these types of behaviors and, and not only model them, but learn how to inculcate them into other people, right? Uh, with the end, not necessarily of sort of prescribing for them like particular content or beliefs or lifestyles or anything like that, but with the very sort of methodological point of you know, teaching them how to think carefully and communicate carefully and concisely, right? And so I, I, I've been very lucky throughout my life, I think both both in the academic sector and beyond, to have quite a few people, I mean, even now, uh, advising me on the the project that I'm currently working on, the, the National High School Ethics Bowl, who model this this type of behavior. And it's, it's really, really important. And like I said, I, I count myself lucky to have had that modeled so clearly, because as I mentioned before, it's it's not always a given. And as you sort of exemplified, I think that's that's clear. Yeah. Can you think about from these different mentors that you've had some specific behavior that somebody has modeled that really resonated for you that maybe other people could either visualize or emulate or, or think about a good practice to actually bring about this clear, concise, purposeful style of communication? Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think I would characterize it. Uh, I, if I had to slap it on a bumper sticker, right? I, I would sloganize it as "Clarity is kind." And what I mean by that is that there's a lot of, you know, inefficiency and red tape in most corporations and in the nonprofit world. And in the nonprofit world and in the education world in particular, that can come from, you know, a sort of mishmash or, or, or you might say, mismatch of expectations and procedures and things like that. So one of the things that I've most appreciated about mentors and and folks that I've had to be responsive to over the years is that it's actually much kinder for them to make their expectations clear in advance, even if I don't like them, um, than it is to sort of let you flounder and let you sort of, you know, spend a lot of time and energy and resources finding out the, you know, the less ideal way to do something, right? So, I mean, I, I think that you know, being able to establish expectations clearly, sort of in advance of the work, right? And the specific behavior, of course, is is all interpersonal, right? Like learning to navigate that, learning to to tell people things that they may or may not wish to hear from you, but nonetheless, in the long term, will benefit them. I, I think that's 
pretty crucial to these questions about what good leadership consists in. Absolutely. And that's empowering. And I think it's also treating people like adults that we don't have, people aren't so fragile as maybe that we imagine that they are, that they can't hear a critique, a criticism, or we're not going to go in that direction. We're going in a different direction. Yes, I know you want to throw this gala the way we did last year, but we're not going to do that this year for these variety of reasons. And not only telling people uh, what we're going to do, but of course, the reason behind it, again, going back to giving people explanations that really helps us mm -hmm. to to execute even something that we don't really like. But if we know that there that there is a reason and what the reason yeah. is, people are more likely to get on board. That's right. I, I think that's that's actually like, I mean, I don't know, maybe I I do this excessively because I'm as as I like to joke, a recovering academic, right? But um, but old habits die hard. And I mean, so this is a skill that that philosophers are quite adept at, right? And something that that I actually hope to be inculcating in young people with my work with the, the National High School Ethics Bowl, this idea of being sort of reasons and ideas responsive rather than directly uh, sort of hierarchy responsive. The idea that, you know, you sort of follow the ideas where they go and the the best ones end up winning the day. I think that's a, a sort of deeply important way of thinking about disagreement in an era in particular where not only work, not only at work, but more broadly, sort of socially, politically in, in our communities, we, uh, shall we say, we are not great at uh, navigating disagreements, particularly when they're about things that are important. Yeah, absolutely. I want to I want to get to what you're doing right now, but I am interested in your, your route to philosophy, going all the way through and getting a PhD in philosophy. Mm -hmm. Philosophy is misunderstood widely. I think it's misunderstood by sure. philosophers. <laughs> sure. But when I think about clarity, I don't really think about philosophy, even though I think philosophers are trying to get clear, but sometimes it's all the distinctions, it's clear as mud. But when you're communicating to somebody in an office setting, they don't need all of the arguments like, you know, in the matrix and these right. ones, they need, this is what it is. This is what we're going to do, you know, mm -hmm. in, in collaboration, but they need clarity and to be concise, which of course is an art for people who love words and arguments. Yeah. So, oh yeah. so tell us about how you came into philosophy, how you came to love it and how it has informed who you are today as a leader. Well, I, my my experience probably isn't an original one. I would describe my pathway toward this particular kind of educational background as circuitous. Um, I was one of those folks who, you know, as a somewhat unenthused 19-year-old, changed majors like most people change clothes in the first year of, of my undergraduate experience. But one of the things that I was always particularly interested in were the ways that people think and speak and the ways that people disagree. And for a while, I thought that that meant that I wanted to be a lawyer. And then I discovered what not only going to the law school, but in fact, being a lawyer would entail. And I ran in the other direction. Um, so I took a path that a lot of students, a lot of undergraduate students often take to, you know, settling into a philosophy class in that, you begin as a political science major with the intention of going to law school, and you take a course in your distribution requirements that's on something like ethics or political theory. And then you think, wow, these questions, uh, in my own view, are a lot more interested than are a lot more interesting than questions about statistical modeling, elections, and 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 so on and so forth. And this gets at what I think is important about you know, sort of broadly social and political thinking, uh, namely something like normativity, right? I want to know why people hold the views that they do, why they think they're convincing, what their reasoning is, and so on and so forth. And so I was initially sort of uh, grabbed, if you will, um, by an intro to ethics class at the University of West Georgia, where I uh, was an undergraduate. And um, the things that I appreciated there were just I mean, it was the first time in my life I had really experienced this sort of like follow the ideas where they go kind of dialectic. And I thought that that was really refreshing because in particular, I, I think I think American public, I, I went to public high school. I think American public education does some things well. I think there are a lot of things that it does not particularly do well. And one of the things that it doesn't do well is sort of like 
developing a deeply seated sort of sense of agency in its students, right? Um, if anything, um, my own high school experience sometimes felt a little bit infantilizing. It wasn't quite like we were adults in training. It was like we were overgrown children and we were sometimes treated that way. But, you know, given our behaviors, I, I, I think probably our teachers, our supervisors, so to speak, uh, could be forgiven, right? But I think that that idea of kind of like developing my own agency and thinking about like, oh, I have a view about, you know, insert issue here. And I have an obligation to others to sort of think through why I consider this the way I do. I have a sort of public obligation to explain my view in, in a particular kind of way, right? Like all these sort of interpersonal virtues that I, I have, you know, now I look back on 10 years later and think like, wow, society would really be nice if, if we all practiced these <laughs> sort of virtues and skills and dispositions more often. So it's, it's really a nice sort of retrospective that those are the things I was initially, like those kinds of dispositions were things that, and in particular, the fact that this all occurs via conversation that's sort of dialectical back and forth, right? And also constant to the point of maybe being annoying um, to, as a sort of sociological point about philosophers, right? But I, I think it's it's a really nice retrospective that like that's what interested me about the discipline, particularly in view of the kind of work that I want to do now, which is public in its nature. Uh, it's it's not designed to turn students into philosophers. It's designed to turn students into thinkers who are going to be better, you know, not only better thinkers and better students, but better colleagues and better members of communities and better members of society is the hope. So these are the kind of dispositions that I appreciated, like from from early on, lackadaisical 19-year-old Alex, uh, really till now. I mean, and that's what I would describe as the kind of through line. So it was um, it was a circuitous path, but uh, it became one that I think was was clear for me over time. Once I once I settled, I I kind of discovered that I didn't want to do anything else. And for a while, I, I, I took the the sort of straightforward academic path. The thing that you know may not come as a surprise, given the way that I've described it, is that I was always interested in teaching primarily, um, rather than research, which you know most academics have to balance really carefully. So one of the, the first times in graduate school that I got like an outsized amount of freedom was the time that I taught my first solo undergraduate course. And that I thought was just like the most freedom I'd ever experienced and the best experience. And it ended up, I think, being a good experience for students too. But that's sort of when I really settled into it and thought, oh, okay, what I think is important about this is not necessarily the the sort of, you know, abstract and dry uh, rehearsing of ideas in the pages of philosophy journals, which are fantastic, but few people comparatively to population read, but, you know, sort of inculcating and, and fostering these, you know, not only practical behaviors, but dispositions to, you know, think and communicate in certain ways among younger folks. And that's something I've focused on as before, both in my, my teaching with undergraduates and with now our work with high school students. I also found philosophy my freshman year, or, or it was my yep. freshman year in the intro to philosophy course, and I just had no idea that was a thing and just absolutely that's was right. taken with it. And thinking about ideas, you. that's right, and having these conversations. And philosophers in general, not always, have this ability to, in a way, disassociate the idea from themselves. So we are talking about ideas, and we don't have to hold our personality to the idea. You know, some Sometimes we fail at that. But I think it's such wonderful practice when we talk about things that are ethereal, things that are, you know, if we're banting about, you know, like what, what a form is or do forms exist or whatever it may be, that kind of practice to put into the concrete particular. Because when we get to conflict at work, it is personal. And if something is a problem for me, it's because it's a problem for me. And it is particular, it's concrete, it's not abstract. But those skills of being able to think through what exactly is going on, what is, why is this bothering me, what might be going on with somebody else, right? So in philosophy, of course, we're always thinking about mm -hmm. what, you know, what is the counterexample or counterexamples? Right. How would someone respond right. to me? How would we respond that, that back and forth, which I think is so wonderful about the National High School Ethics Bowl, because it encourages students not just to come up with an argument, which is important, but to come up with counterarguments and counterarguments to the counterargument that, that, uh, 
reflexive ability to mm-hmm. communicate with others so that we're actually in dialogue instead of just accusing people, which right. takes away personal agency. How do we function right. well in society? By not giving away our power to everybody else, but by being able to communicate and seeing what we what we can affect and, and how we can carry ourselves and what we can decide matters for us and how we want to live our lives. Right. I think that's like, yeah, I mean, I think that's an interesting point. It's a great model in that, you know, in the standard undergraduate philosophy classroom, skills that seem applied to very abstract. And as you said, I like the word ethereal, um, like very ethereal sort of concepts, right? Things that are sort of esoteric in comparison to the types of things that, you know, most adults think about, right, on their, in their everyday lives. Uh, but the disposition is the the really important part, right? The idea that, um, you know, people have reasons for all their behaviors, right? And sometimes it's up to us to sort of suss out what those are um, and to anticipate, you know, what what might be coming from another person and where. Um, and so that sort of like, that sort of systematic kind of empathy, right? The ability mm-hmm. to perspective take is deeply important, right? And I, I think that's what's that's what's so interesting about doing doing ethics, uh, you know, in addition to sort of doing like, you know, so-called classical core areas of philosophy, like meta, uh, metaphysics and epistemology. You're talking about stuff which people do have deep personal, political, social takes and stakes in, right? Mm-hmm. These are things around which people organize their lives, right? And there are also things which we have to disagree about sometimes in the public square. Um, so the important part is, you know, taking those sort of skills and dispositions to to navigate disagreement in particular, you know, out of the realm of the abstract and ethereal and, and toward the realm of, you know, how we think about everyday disagreements, particularly about values. Because many disagreements that we have every day, like really do uh, reduce in many ways. I don't want to be overly reductionistic, but really do reduce to fundamental conflicts and values, right? Or fundamental misunderstandings about value commitments or things like that. So, I mean, I think, you know, being able to, in some ways, like both work in the space of ideas, but also understand that ideas are important to people um, in various ways is, is really important and particularly at work. Yeah, absolutely. And I like the word that you're using disposition. Uh, I I like to, you know, I'm a virtue ethicist. And so I think about, you know, how do we develop those virtues, right? So if mm-hmm. we want to get the habit, so I'm, what I do for a living now is conflict resolution in, in workplaces. And so if people want to get in a habit of being able to actually address conflicts early, often swiftly and justly, you don't, it's like, you know, anything, you don't just start doing it. You have to start small. You have to get those skills and there's a variety of ways to practice. And so I always say, you know, practice with something that's very low stakes, practice with people who are friendly, who are on your side, practice at home, practice with a friend about talking about something that might be mildly discomforting to you, but then you can get bigger. And one of my goals for helping people talk about things at work is that they'll be able to also talk about things in their private life and their public life because conflict resolution is a set of skills and whether we're talking about abortion euthanasia immigration whatever it is these really big things and they really are big and meaningful the everyday little things those little barbs that we feel those slights that we feel are very impactful too people ruminate about something they overheard in the hallway three years ago at work. We're very sensitive to our surroundings and how we're being treated and how we feel we're being cared for or overlooked. And so how do we give voice to talking about those things so that we don't other and we don't get into these unnecessary sides at work, which we see are in the public square. And maybe in the public square, they're necessary in some way to draw lines in the sand. And yet, once we draw a line, how do we cross that line? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, yeah, there's a lot to say here. I mean, a lot of philosophers are thinking, a lot of political philosophers, that's my background, a lot of political philosophers in particular, right? You know, they're thinking about, you know, the the possibility of overdoing sort of value-based political argument. So the idea that like, 
all aspects of our life become these sort of interestingly politicized um, and sometimes like combatively politicized elements, right? Where we're just sort of constantly hurling these little barbs at each other, sometimes whether we intend to or not. I mean, I think that, you know, the 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 type of disposition that that sort of tightly knits together like a careful consideration of ideas and a careful consideration of the sort of background values and uh, you know like direction from which people approach those is careful right to care about these sort of secondary social things right like the manner of your you know disagreement um, whether it's productive whether it's constructive right and the thing that that struck me I mean there's a very Aristotelian thing in this in this sort of account here right which is about you know this idea of sort of practicing early and often and also you know not being not being I guess naive about the fact that this isn't like anything but a lifelong project right I mean I think this is something that that we have to continually like I mean you know not to get too sort of ancient philosopher you ought to spend your life in the lyceum sort of uh vibe here but like there's a there's there's sort of an interesting point which is that like we live in a society that's pluralistic. We we work in spaces that are pluralistic, and and you know at the end of the day, what that means is that there's a constant process of deliberation and calibration, and you know learning how to deal with, negotiate with, right, um, other people and their values and their ideas pretty constantly, right. That's something that never goes away, um, and those skills are deeply portable, right. It's not as though like you know, learning to navigate them at one workplace obviates using those skills and dispositions. That's why the language of skills and dispositions is so effective here, right? Like, it doesn't prohibit you, of course, from taking them to other contexts or taking them to new workplaces, or in fact, as you said, sort of crossing from the public life to the private life. I think that's, those things are deeply important. I really like what you said that this is a lifelong project because disagreement is part and parcel of the human condition. We we have different perspectives, we have different ideas, and this is a good, right? Conflict isn't bad necessarily. It's when we, it's unmanaged, when uh, we lack any sort of self-reflection, when we get unnecessarily hostile, all, the, all these sorts of baggage that can happen. But conflict itself, right? The obstacle is the way. That there's if we can reframe for ourselves, and I really think it is not just being naive, but a kind of reframing that helps us. If we think about these are opportunities, this is an opportunity to grow. This is an opportunity to learn. This is an opportunity to be better tomorrow than I am today by listening to this dissent, by doing something else, by listening to myself, right? Because so much of conflict resolution is self-knowledge. What do I think? Why do I think it? Why, what are my reasons? Are there other reasons? What's going on outside of myself? And having that internal dialogue so that I can have a fruitful present dialogue with somebody else instead of I'm just waiting for to talk, right? An actual dialogue, that the back and forth. And I, I think this idea that with change management in, in work environment or wherever, mm -hmm. the idea is that we don't we don't get through the change and we're done. It's almost like a marriage. You don't go to the wedding and you're like, phew, we're done with that. No, the marriage begins, right? And that's that's it. You don't get done with a conversation, the human conversation about differences and dissent and the new in, in the public sphere, there's always going to be something new to talk about, you know, technology and medicine, there's all this new. So get used to it, develop those skills yeah. because the more right. you develop it, not the going better, away. <laughs> that's right. The better you're going to be served, your community is going to be served and the, the more happy you will be in life, the better life you're going to have. Yeah. I think, I mean, I, I, I think the, the strategy of sort of reframing conflict in workplaces in particular as a kind of like, you know, um, developmental feature for your own life. I, I think that's that's both clever and it has the virtue of being true, right? <laughs> Whereby like the, the very purpose of dialogue is to sort of, I mean, you know, this is a, 
a sort of classic undergraduate philosophy metaphor, right? But the the very metaphor of a, of the dialogue is sort of like you know people rubbing up against each other to sharpen, right? Um, and I think that's that's like a really interesting metaphor for you know the way we ought to think about our our everyday disagreements, not in the 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 sense that they have to be zero sum or combative, but in the sense that you know in a lot of cases dissent makes the product better. Yeah. And not only does it make the product better, it makes us better along the way. That's right. Um, and, and, you know, that, that that can take all kinds of, of you know, forms whereby, you know, maybe you're exposed to a new idea or method or something that you wouldn't have otherwise thought of. Um, or maybe you're exposed to just like a completely new framing on the thing that you're working on. Right. right? I mean, and those possibilities aren't, uh, I mean, they, they aren't possibilities if you always frame disagreements as combative. Right. And I think when we think about combative, it is this sort of old win-lose model. This, you know, our whole culture is littered with this, you know, in sports and everything else, and this idea of scarcity of resources. But when we're talking about a work environment, family, and in community, if we think about everything as win-lose, we all lose because we're we're all together. And if we can think of it more in a needs-based model, where we are part of the human community, and insofar as somebody else wins, I win as well. So how do we? How do we figure out when there is disagreement, what what our feelings are about the disagreement and, you know, nonviolent communication, what our feelings are, what they're rooted in, what the, what is this need that we have, and then what kind of requests can we put forward? Not so that it's a watered down compromise, but how can we move forward? And it's a little bit harder, I think, when we're talking about big issues, but when we're thinking about working together in an office environment, I think it's much more manageable or even in a family environment, you know, like, should we take this vacation to Aruba or should we save for our child's college education? I don't know. We have these different sure. sorts of that look like they are one, one or the other is going to win. But if we can uncover what's going on underneath, there's the real opportunity to see the other person and to be seen and, and to move forward in a human, caring, flourishing way. I agree. I mean, I, I think that I mean, it's fitting, right, that we began this conversation with a, a sort of short diatribe on on mission alignment, right? Because I, I think, like, while the scale of navigating disagreements about core values and navigating disagreements work may be completely different, the mechanism is, in fact, the same, right? Where the idea is that, like, at least in, in broadly democratic terms, we think of ourselves as citizens as being sort of similarly devoted to a common project that we have to take on together, which, you know, in classical social contract theory is as minimal as uh, living together non-murderously, right? <laughs> right. Um, there's there's no lower bar, right? Um, no, but I mean, the the mechanism, in fact, right, like of, of recognizing common value proposition, even if we overlap and, and, and agree on little else, yeah. I think is really key to framing disagreement at work in particular, right? I mean, you know, on the one hand, like, have perspective, put some th put things in their in, in their respective places, right? Um, not every conflict is a hill to die on, but the mechanisms are really importantly similar, right? If we want workplaces that are sort of you know broadly democratic in their nature, we ought to promote the kinds of deliberation that we think would make a democratic polity healthier. Um, and we can do the same thing in workplaces, right? That's why something like, you know, deliberation about the mission, the goals, and their calibration, right, is so, so important in any kind of job. Absolutely. Again, back to that, that clarity, right? So what exactly are we doing here? And then having conversations about how we're going to move forward and move forward in a I like the word concise, but concise can also leave a lot of room for the individual and, and creativity. So Alex, when you think about the different places that you have worked, whether it's with education or elsewhere, can you tell us about a conflict that you encountered and what was difficult for you and how did you deal with it? Yeah, I, I mean, I think one of the things that I encountered quite a bit just because in, in my current role, we work with a large, you know, diffuse group of, of constituents. Um, in, in fact, in the past, as you mentioned earlier, you've been one of them, right? But I, I, I think, I mean, I'm, I'm going to drone on and, and uh, you know, 
get us back to like alignment on core value proposition, right? I mean, the the conflicts that I've experienced in my current role have all been about, I think, disagreements about how best to accomplish a mission, right? Whether it's like, you know, some very practical, like, should we change the rules of the National High School Bowl to account for XYZ, right? Or something like that. Or um, can my regional high school ethics bowl do something that is in practice different than the others, right? And have that sort of core fairness and consistency, even though, right? Those sorts of conflicts and disagreements that happen often um, at work, right? They're they're not, you know, huge end of the world things. They're not things which we're, you know, going to die on hills or whatever. But they're places where I think like taking a step back, reframing disagreements in terms of, okay, we're here doing the same thing. I think we're interested in the same ends. Let's talk about how we get there and how we don't, right? And framing the disagreement as that rather than a disagreement that is like best understood in some sort of like sectarian or partisan or, or sort of combative way, like reframing conflict around are we actually together in this or do we have different understandings of what we're up to right i think that's that's the core thing and that's that's what i would say like my my strategy is is kind of repetitive right at this point right but the core to all of this is just like learning to respectfully and carefully deliberate about those things with other people right and do so in a way that solves problems rather than creates them uh at least fingers crossed well, I love that. I mean, having a repetitive strategy sounds brilliant because most people, when it comes to conflict, it is the case, don't have a strategy or their strategy is magical thinking. Let's just pretend right. it's not happening. Let's just hope that person leaves because clearly they don't want to be here or, <laughs> you know, whatever it is. And we just wish it away. So yeah. I That's not super productive. <laughs> no, it's not. It's not. I absolutely endorse finding a strategy that works for you that helps you to, in your own mind, how am I going to have this difficult conversation? Because what is difficult for you, Alex, may be different than what's difficult for me, difficult for somebody else. And it doesn't matter if it's difficult for somebody else or not. If it is making it so that I'm off mission and unable to do my work efficiently, and I don't feel like I'm being productive because the environment is feeling hostile or maybe even toxic, what is my way forward? And I, I, I also agree uh, I love this getting to what we agree on. What? Okay, let's go back to basics. This, this is what our mission is. This is how I understand our mission to be working out. What is your understanding? And starting that dialogue from a place of agreement. Where yeah. I think we can do that in the larger culture because it can mm -hmm. help us not vilify each other. Oh, you're on the other right. side of gun control. Sure. But hey, we agree down here. Okay, so... Yeah. What can we do? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a very practical point, which is that I, you know, I've been lucky to be in the education sector, in the nonprofit sector, at least most of my life, where this type of workplace is actually pretty common. It strikes me that, it, you know, having a sort of, it's not exactly anti-hierarchical, but it's certainly very democratic, right? It requires a lot of trust between you know, employees of the firm at various levels. It requires a lot of buy-in, a lot of that sort of core mission alignment. I want to be here. I want to pursue the thing. And that always, that, 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 like, I want to be, like, realistic. That's not always the approach in the corporate world, right? You know, there there is hierarchy. There is misalignment, right? But I, I think, like, I mean, maybe maybe that has implications for us sort of rethinking in a forward looking way what our actual workplace structures look like. Of course, that's not the topic of our conversation. And I'm sure that we could talk about that all day. Um, <laughs> but suffice it to say, right, that like, you know, you may be getting the the feeling that, you know, my my workplace, if it's riddled by these types of you know, particularly interpersonal or particularly toxic conflicts is not particularly democratic. I mean, you know, it takes some 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 heart in the fact that our public culture is not like that either. But in our best moments, we're able to manage, yeah. right? And I, I think that, and we're able to manage like by reflecting on core alignments and and core overlaps, right, and things like that. And you know, that's that's not any naive illusion that we always manage to uh, navigate everything well and effectively and efficiently. But I think it is kind of an aspirational ideal. 
right? It's, yeah. it's like if we want if we want our workplaces to resemble, uh, you know, in their ideal a kind of democratic polity, we ought to be willing to render ourselves and our colleagues as you know participants in that. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And you know, when I think about a lot of people at work are there not because necessarily the purpose, but for a paycheck, right? They, cost of living, everyone's talking about the cost of living. We want to be able to pay our mortgage or our rent sure. and and feed ourselves and our children. And yet at the same time, we can still think about, I'm very interested in um, employee-centric values. So how can we how can we be expected to be treated and how should we expect to treat others at work? And that is something that we can have conversations about. What does it mean to be respectful at McDonald's? What does it mean to be respectful as we clean pools together or whatever it might be? These are pretty basic interests that we all have in the community. How can we go to work so that we feel safe and more than that, happy or uh, not brought down by the drama or by whatever it is that is making it difficult for us to feel psychologically okay, if not psychologically safe to voice dissent, at least not tortured. And people live, people have really horrendous work environments, which I believe, I mean, there's no excuse for what a lot of people have to suffer at their work environments. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I I don't want to get the sense that like the, I don't want to give off the sense that like the the answer to like particularly egregious, you know, workplace right. problems is, you know, let's all stand in a circle and, and deliberate together, right? Like there, <laughs> there are of course, there are of course limitations, right? Right. Um, right. And I, you know, I I think that that's important to note, right? And I, but I think you know, like there is something kind of core to this method, right? Which is just like recognizing the agency of your colleagues, regardless of what the goal is, regardless of yeah. where you work, right? right. Like everyone has sort of basic human interests they want to be fulfilled at work and everyone i i think you know centrally even if you are just there for a paycheck you want to do a good job right you want to be mar- at least marginally fulfilled at work um this is the thing many of us spend our entire lives chasing right so i think regardless of what the pursuit is like we all can sort of focus on a on a shared value right even if that shared value is very minimal right? That can get us, like, you know, through some cooperation, suitably minimal cooperation, even if you're just showing up for a paycheck, right? I think that can get us things like, you know, basic principles of collegiality, basic principles of, you know, respect and engagement with your colleagues, right? Regardless of what you're working on. So I don't want to, you know, I don't want to give the sense that this sort of like, you know, lofty academic take on workplace culture is the sort of end-all be-all, but I do actually think that it has lessons for, you know, workplaces and, and you know, engaging with one's community members, regardless of where that venue happens to be. And I don't think that you're being lofty at all, because I think conversation and dialogue is always the way to go. And if you realize that the person outside, for whatever reason, either a colleague or a boss, is not a place to have a fruitful conversation with you, and, and you're in the best position to know that, you can have a conversation with yourself because a lot of times we give our agency away. We give away our responsibility by thinking, I can't do anything. I'm trapped. I have to wait for the other person. But if we start having those internal dialogues, we can we can see, well, what are our options and then move forward in that. And so I think dialogue is always empowering and it's always the way to go, whether hopefully we can have it with others. But if we if somebody finds themselves in, in a toxic environment, that may not be possible, at least for the others around you, but you can start having it with yourself. And once you start imagining and realizing that you do have this sort of efficacy and you can act on your own behalf and the behalf of others, then you can move forward. But it's also what you said, recognizing that other people have agency, that they're making decisions and that probably they're acting in what they perceive to be their self-good their you know what is beneficial to them for whatever reason we and we all have stories so alex i want you to tell us about the national high school ethics bowl and before you do i want to preface by saying i have three boys and all of my boys have gone through it oldest kid 
He said, because of ethics bowl and other experiences, he's in his first year of law school. I've had another student who went through it at high school with me for three years and she's in law school at Knoxville. And my other kid went all the way through it. And now he's, he's at university of Memphis and my youngest kid, this is his second year. And I absolutely love um, National High School Ethics Bowl. And when people ask me, how can we start having real conversations about stuff that matters in the culture? Or how can we really you know, help students to speak up for themselves and others in a work mm-hmm. environment? I say it's stuff like, not just stuff, it's the National High School Ethics yeah. Bowl. So yeah. Alex, tell us all about it and, sure. and what it is and how people can get involved. Yeah, yeah, thanks. This is my my favorite question, and I'm I'm delighted with that set up, set up. It sounds like the Ethics Bowl is a family affair, and uh, it's it's doing good things for for the Browns. Um, so also go Vols. Very excited <laughs> about about your your presence in Tennessee. I'm a big fan, but no, the I mean the the High School Ethics Bowl really take seriously a lot of the core elements of the conversation that we've been having. And so I'm lucky enough to be that program's director. It's based at the Parr Center for Ethics at UNC Chapel Hill, where I work in North Carolina. The program is an outreach program that ranges across the United States directed toward high school students, which is really designed to get them thinking, talking, and we hope, fingers crossed, working together um, on really tough moral issues confront us as, as members of a democratic society. Importantly, we like to tell people that it's kind of like high school speech and debate, only better. And for folks who may be fans of speech and debate, I, I don't want to I don't want to cast too many aspersions. I, I want to clarify that you know those skills have uh, those rhetorical and argumentation skills have really important places. But the thing that that I think Ethics Bowl does interestingly different is focus on students' agency and focus on a sort of non-combative, collaborative way of reasoning. So the the Ethics Bowl format, in keeping with our kind of conversation here, is based on the idea of dialogue. It's it's dialectical. It's two way. In way that many debate matches are not. It privileges student agency in that the views that students tend to advocate in Ethics Bowl are actually the views that they themselves hold, or at the very least have developed a consensus on internally with their teams before they come to an event. So the core model is effectively that students sort of get together and reason over a set of case studies, uh, which pick out particular issues in ethics and politics, some of which are sort of everyday pedestrian kind of real life stuff. They're things about friendship, or I think we had a case about like reading your sister's diary, which is, you know, if not politically uh, effective, at least dramatic and, and you know, something that, that kids have stake in, ranging from those sort of everyday interpersonal things, of course, to, you know, big social and political questions about, uh, you know, conflict around the world, about the student loan crisis, about the nature of AI and how it's going to affect not only uh, our sort of laws and procedures around things like intellectual property, but how it's going to affect the future of work and the future of art and these sorts of questions. So the cases range really all over the place and have students take on really tough conversations about issues that are really present in their lives, either sort of in a broad political citizenship sense or in their kind of everyday moral lives. And then they sort of take that reasoning into a pretty controlled exchange that's designed around this idea of a two-way dialogue. So one team gives a presentation on a case, another team gives comments on it, and importantly, the comments aren't always couched as objections. That's the primary mode of engagement in something like speech and debate. It's a very sort of like, I'll go pro, you go con, and we will argue, and ne'er the two shall meet. And in fact, like, in, on purpose, ne'er, ne'er the two shall meet, like you will lose, I will win. Where the core goal about uh, with ethics bull isn't necessarily to win the argument as conventionally understood, but to collaborate and move towards something true or something reasonable together. Now, of course, there's a little bit of tension there because it does remain a kind of competitive activity. Um, so the things that we actually evaluate are not only these sort of classical philosophical skills like argumentative rigor and clarity and conciseness and some of those things that we talked about early on, but the actual like method and 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 tenor and extent of engagement that students show with not only their peers themselves but the peer their peers' ideas, right? And I I think that that's a really 
like it's a really nice testament to the fact that dialogue can work wonders with students thinking about things, some of which they're familiar with, others of which they're being exposed to for the first time as a method, as a skills, as a set of skills and, and dispositions. I think this sort of like dialogical reasoning bit takes us quite a long way, particularly among students in their sort of academic pursuits and not just in their academic pursuits, but as you mentioned earlier, right? Like they can take them into advanced coursework. They can take them into their careers. They can take them ideally into their workplaces, right? And if students are, you know, taking those sorts of lessons away in, in into their workplaces and we're sort of, you know, uh, on the heels of a bunch of generational change, kind of handing them the keys, so to speak, I'm pretty comfortable handing the keys over to ethics bowl students because the students that participate in, in the program are incredibly incisive. Um, and the, the thing that I think I've most learned is really underwriting of that sort of focus on agency, right? Like these students are in fact already contributors to their moral and political communities and we would be best served by taking them seriously in that regard. And again, I mean, this is a more generally applicable principle just to tie this back to our conversation. You know, wouldn't it be great if we all worked in places where this sort of mentality and these sorts of attitudes were common? Yeah. Um, and that's the real goal of, of the National High School Ethics Bowl and of its sister program, the Intercollegiate Ethics Bowl, which I know you mentioned a bit earlier. That's a program that's been around for a while that, that we were initially based on. So it's realistically possible now to, you know, do Ethics Bowl for a pretty good section of your, your sort of developmental formative years, right? And so the more, um, you know, the more people are engaging with this method and the more people, in fact, are engaging with each other, uh, in my view, the better. Because that's something, as we, we talked about earlier, that we're not always the best at navigating as a society. What I love, I love everything that you said, and what I love about Ethics Bowl is is this collaboration. And as we talked about, conflict is not you're you're not done with it or a social issue, and then you're done. It's, and that's, that's what right. I think is wonderful about Ethics Bowl is that these students are learning that the idea is that we're not asking them to solve world hunger, right, or solve some sort no. of climate crisis. We're asking them to further the conversation about these mm-hmm. difficult social issues or personal issues. And it's thinking in that way that this is a process. It's not, I've said this, it's done. Mm -hmm. You've said that Mm -hmm. you're done. But it is this collaborative process of moving forward on really difficult issues, which shows you that that's what we're looking for. We're not looking for this binary. We're not looking for win or lose. That's right. And also this, it's this real emphasis on active listening, because what you prepare, at least as a coach, what I've done is you prepare so much for giving your presentation on one of these 15 or 16 cases that are given every year, but that you can prepare for and you can prepare for listening, but you never know what you're going to get. And mostly the points are given for how well you listen and how well you respond. So not Mm -hmm. only are you responding to other high school students, you are also responding to professors or the judges there's three judges and so and that's the longest portion of an ethics bowl half of a round is these students engaging at this high level with these adults who are for them and want them to do well and asking incisive Mm -hmm. questions and they are going back and forth that ability to listen and listen well and respond is huge it's a huge skill yeah i think that's yeah that's a really it's a really interesting thing to pick out. You know, we we tend to to emphasize the 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 extent to which students are engaging with each other in the sort of commentary response dialectic, but those judges periods are deeply formative as well, as you mentioned, like this this idea. And then you know, I want to add that like ethics bowl judges aren't always professors. Right. Um, there's like an interesting diverse class, you know, cast of characters, right? Who who often fulfill these roles, and, and we actively seek, you know, to reach out into local communities um, in all of our regions around the United States to bring a diversity of perspectives and backgrounds and disciplinary assumptions and things like that to the table uh, to really sort of form these conversations with students, right? You know, I've I've seen particularly instructive cases where I, I think um, one of the coolest moments I, I've ever 
sort of seen in an ethics bowl is is um two schools which are dramatically differently positioned on this issue talking about the nature of policing in a room with three judges who are respectively a philosophy professor a police chief and a sitting judge and now and now i don't say that to to sort of choreograph that the point of ethics bowl is you know for people to offer their expertise to the students but the students benefit from dialogical conversations with folks from different backgrounds. And the idea, that idea that like the judges too are there for them, right? Where the purpose, not only for the teams themselves, but for the judges, right? Is to promote a clear, and we might say, you know, temporally or, or, or conceptually progressive, if not, I don't mean progressive in a partisan sense, right? right? But like the idea of moving along a conversation about which students can offer something clear and reasonable and useful, right, is is really core to the experience, right? And again, I mean, that's something that we would be really well served if folks took into their workplaces more commonly than they do. Yeah. And one thing that I have noticed from my years of, of ethics bowl is how excited the students are when they come away and what they ruminate on. And a lot of times they ruminate on the judges' questions and how, you know, what the response was or what they could have said or... And so this long lasting ripple effect. And also one thing I really appreciate is because students aren't told how they're supposed to argue. And there are four basic sort of ethical theories in the background that students can't can use. I always say, hey, try something on. You are growing and developing. Try arguing from this point of view. How does it feel? Do you like it? What are the pros and cons of arguing this way? And as you see them, especially if you start with them with as a freshman to their senior year, because in high school, you do a lot of development, just like in college you do, but how they develop and their reasoning ability and their ability to listen to others right. is just, it's, I mean, it's such a privilege, I think, to yeah. be a part of this and to, and to, you're not giving it to students. I never tell anybody what to think, but you're helping mm-hmm. them develop and you know that it's a development and you're not a... I don't find, I'm never afraid of what they have to say, even if I disagree, it's a process and they have to go through the process. It doesn't do any good. We know this as adults to be told what to think. We need to be given the freedom to explore. And there's such a lack of freedom in our culture because we're afraid of being canceled. We're afraid of being wrong. We're afraid of the negative repercussions. But in this place, it seems to me that there's this real ability to explore and within guidance, which I think is powerful, mm-hmm. but to explore and develop. Yeah, I think that's that's crucial. And I mean, the the information that we're getting from students on this, um, not only from students, but from their teachers is really encouraging, right? They, they find these skills, both, you know, sort of academic skills like critical thinking and, you know, reasoning in particular ways and being able to think on your feet and respond to problems, but also things like, you know, the, the fundamental impulse of like wanting to collaborate on a team when a difficult problem arises, right? These are really important soft skills that teachers prize, right? They're, they're in many ways worth their weight in gold. And the, you know, our program's only 10 years old. We're still in many ways learning about exactly what the developmental effects are of this program. We're just now getting to the point where National High School Ethics Bowls alums are settling into their careers for the first time, right? So we're really learning about how it's developmentally affected them. We've we've begun some empirical work at the at the Par Center this year on trying to uh, address and evaluate the extent to which students are actually developing um, these sort of social psychological virtues like humility, right? Um, things which, you know, we might think we could all use a little bit more of <laughs> on occasion. Right? Right. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I, you know, I, I, I get this. Yeah, I mean, you know, maybe I sound sort of cheesy and hopeful, but yeah guilty i i think the the students are incredibly impressive and and you know as you sort of referenced earlier when given the freedom to explore their own ideas and when taken seriously as sort of you know progenitors of those ideas the things that they do in in many ways are kind of boundless like yeah. they're very impressive and the progress that they're able to make the the things that they say right about some of these really difficult cases or or things where i think like Sometimes I, I think us adults should just sort of sit back and learn, right? It's it's impressive. And like I said, there are there are these 
really core dispositions, which I, I hope students take away from them, uh, from, from their participation in this activity. And again, which we're all served by. Absolutely. So we have, there's the National High School Ethics Bowl, there's the Intercollegiate Ethics Bowl. And so I see the next step of evolution is having something either for work environments or for festivals where you go mm -hmm. to different festivals around the country and you you hear music and then you also have a, an ethics bowl <laughs> competition or, yeah, you I know, <laughs> yes, Pepsi versus Coke, you know, and they've got their teams yeah. and they're, you know, uh, I, I see this as a wonderful activity that needs to be brought it's wonderful for people in general. How do I talk mm -hmm. to my neighbor? If you mm -hmm. don't talk to your neighbor, because the the going wisdom today today is you don't talk about politics or religion at the at the <laughs> Thanksgiving table, let alone with your neighbor who's got a different yard sign than yours. So how do we do that? We only do it by doing it. We only do it by practicing. Right. And again, sure. in this low stakes way to develop these virtues so that we can actually act for our common good because drawing these lines and vilifying the other side in culture that i mean everybody can't everybody see the writing on the wall this is not good yeah it doesn't it, it doesn't get us very far <laughs> no it doesn't um, there are there are important limitations yeah <laughs> that's right I, I, no it's 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 really great to 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 sort of hear this um i mean there's interesting work being done on this all the time um so i mean it's it's increasingly possible as I mentioned earlier, to do ethics ball from the time you're very young to the time that you're you're aging, right? So I mean, there's a burgeoning movement toward a middle school ethics ball program if we want to skew younger. Some of my friends and colleagues at the the Prindle Institute for Ethics in Indiana um, have been developing corporate workplace pilots, right, which are designed around you know building corporate compliance culture around this kind of case-based deliberative reasoning. And those yeah. are things that, you know, they've seen some early successes with and things that I'd like to see expand. Here in North Carolina, we actually use ethics bull cases on the matter of speaking to your neighbor. We we use ethics bull cases as the basis for a, a series of recurring conversations in town halls among folks who are living in retirement communities around the research triangle in, in North Carolina. So, I mean, this... Yeah, we've been talking about it as a sort of extracurricular activity, but the the way that we understand it at, at the PAR Center and, and the way that I think we'd all be served by understanding it is this really cool core set of skills that is deeply portable and meaningful from the time that you're very young to the time that you're in advanced age, right? Thinking about in a careful, critical, and we hope collaborative and non-combative way how to reason through tough issues with your colleagues, with your friends, with, you know, so-and-so down the hall who has a political sign in their yard that you think is awful. This is what it's all about. And I think that, you know, doing that more wherever the opportunity arises, whether it's in schools, in, in classrooms, outside, in retirement communities, in bars, whatever, I think those opportunities are welcome in an era where, you know, we really do struggle to talk to each other about fundamentals. Yeah. I love that. I love that you said bars because I was thinking, you know, instead of trivia, <laughs> instead of trivia night, we can That's have, right. you know, ethics night, you know, and uh, yeah. have teams. Yeah. And why not? I mean, they, they, what could they, possibly what what could possibly go wrong? No, no. In all seriousness, <laughs> I, I think that's 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 cool. You get the competitive impulse, but maybe not the 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 sort of combative one. Right, right. So, Alex, my last question for you is: as you look into the future of work, what do you think in general needs to happen so that not only are people treated with dignity and respect, but they're encouraged to flourish? That's a hard one. I mean, I I, I think one is humility. And, you know, that's a word we've used a few times with reference to a few different, both intellectual and, and moral virtues, right? But, you know, it involves that kind of systemic empathy that we were talking about earlier, that recognition that we do, in fact, all have shared projects, even at the same time that we have competing ones and competing ideas, right? So, I mean, one of the things that, that I think the future of work must entail if we are all to be, you know, fulfilled and dignified and, and so on is, you know, taking each other seriously on those grounds, right? And I think doing that, you know, having an ounce more humility, an ounce more civility, 
right? Those things make a deliberative culture at work deeply possible, right? And that makes a lot of what we've, we, we've been talking about less and less a political ideal and more and more the way real life feels. Yeah. And if we're doing that, right, if we're doing that at work, if we're doing that in public, and hopefully if we're doing that at home, then, you know, democracy is going to be all right. I love that. Humility and civility. Absolutely. Well, Alex, thank you so much for talking with us today. I really appreciate it and enjoyed our conversation. I could have talked to you for hours and hours. But... <laughs> of course, of course, Mary, thanks again for the, the invitation. And I totally agree. I think we probably could nerd out on this for, for, a, good, for a good while. That's right. That's right. right. We'll take care. Alex, that was such a treat. I enjoyed our conversation so very much. And listeners, as you can tell, I absolutely love Ethics Bowl and the mission of the Ethics Bowl, both the Intercollegiate and the National High School Ethics Bowl. And I will have links in the notes if you are interested in getting your high schooler or college student involved. They're they're all over the country. Conflict Managed is produced by third-party workplace conflict restoration services and hosted by me, Mary Brown. You can find us online at 3pconflictrestoration.com or email us at 3pconflictrestoration at gmail.com. Come back next week. We have new episodes every Tuesday. Our music is courtesy of Dove Pilot. And remember, conflict is normal and to be expected. Let's deal with it. Until next time, take care.